We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. All right, well, let's get into our text. Like I said, it's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. These are the last two verses, as you can see, of the book of Timothy. And so we'll close our series with these two verses. Starting at verse 20, Paul writes, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Guard the deposit. That is Paul's parting statement to Timothy. In hindsight, of course, we know that this was not the last time that Timothy would hear from Paul, there's another letter coming. God would be gracious to give Paul more years, and so there is a sequel to 1 Timothy. But remember, Paul and Timothy, they did not have the benefit of hindsight. For all they knew, this could have been the last time that Paul would ever have a chance to write to Timothy about what was happening in Ephesus. And if that was going to end up being the case, then Paul knew that there was one thing that Timothy needed to hear above everything else. He needed to hear this word of exhortation, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That's what Paul wanted for Timothy more than anything else. He wanted this item to be at the very top of Timothy's to-do list. Whatever ended up happening in Ephesus, whatever, whatever was going to end up happening, whatever was going to end up shaking out, this was of paramount importance that Timothy remain committed to this mission of guarding what had been entrusted. But in order for Timothy to do this well, he was going to have to reject anything that would threaten that deposit, which is why, according to in addition to telling Timothy that his mission would require him to embrace certain things, Paul also tells him that it would require him to avoid certain things. That's what we see in verse 20. Paul says, avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions which arise from that which is falsely called, quote-unquote, knowledge. Verse 21, those who fall into this trap of false counterfeit knowledge, what, what ends up happening to them? What comes of them? Well, Paul says many of them will end up swerving from the faith. So with these things in mind, what I want to do is I want to issue three exhortations this morning. Three exhortations for the household of God. And it's my conviction that if we as a church will respond faithfully to these three exhortations, 
And what will happen is we will be the kind of church that Paul prescribes here in this letter that we've been looking at. We will be a pillar and a foundation for the truth that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here are the three exhortations. I'll give them to you up front and then we'll walk through each of them. Here they are. Defend what has been entrusted. That's number one. Number two, desist from pseudo-knowledge. Number three, depend on the grace that abounds in Christ. So defend what has been entrusted. Desist from pseudo-knowledge. Depend on the grace that abounds in Christ. Let's look at the first exhortation. Defend what has been entrusted. In the ancient world, there was no such thing as a safe deposit box. It's not like you could show up at your local bank with your valuables in hand and say, I'm here with all the most important things I own. Will you watch them, please? Will you make sure that they stay safe? Please take care of these things. That wasn't an option. There were no safe deposit boxes. They didn't exist, let alone things like a household safe or a security system. These things are modern luxuries that you and I take for granted. But they did not come until long after Paul and Timothy had lived. So in Paul's day, if you were going to go out of town and you wanted to make sure that your valuables were secure, then you had to leave them with someone that you trusted. You had to entrust your most prized possession to someone that you had some level of confidence in. We see in verse 20 that for Paul, Timothy was that person. Recall with me what Paul said at the very start of this letter. He said in chapter 1, verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, stay in Ephesus and make sure that you charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine than the one I delivered. So Paul was going away on official apostolic business in Macedonia, and he left Timothy with what was most valuable. He entrusted to Timothy that which was most precious of all. Timothy was to look after the church in Ephesus. More specifically, Timothy was trusted to make sure that as a congregation, the Ephesians stayed faithful to the gospel that they had received. When Paul talks about the deposit that Timothy is supposed to be guarding, that's what he is referring to. He's referring to the gospel and whether or not the church is going to hold fast to that gospel. But for Timothy, we know that that was going to prove to be more difficult than it may sound because as we've seen throughout this letter, there were some in the church at Ephesus who were swerving from this gospel. They were deviating from what they had received. And so Paul is deeply, deeply concerned. Remember, Paul was one of the first to bring the message of the gospel to Ephesus. Acts 19 talks about how in Paul's apostolic ministry, the the power of the Holy Spirit was demonstrated in Ephesus in an undeniable way. And not only was Paul one of the first to come to Ephesus with the gospel, Paul also gave three 
years of his life to the believers in Ephesus. He discipled these new Christians. He taught them about Jesus. He strengthened them in the gospel. So this church in Ephesus, this church was near and dear to the apostolic heart of Paul. This this wasn't some random, obscure group of people in a faraway city. No. These people, many of them were names and faces and stories that Paul would have known personally. And so when you look at it that way, when when you look at it from that perspective, you see why Paul would be so concerned, right? You see why this would be weighing heavily on him. Because for Paul, nothing was more important than this. Nothing mattered more for him than whether or not the people of God are treasuring the gospel of God. In Paul's mind, the integrity of any church is measured by its faithfulness to the gospel and what it teaches, believes, and practices. Just think about what Paul has been saying throughout this letter. Look back with me at a a few of the texts that we've been exposed to as we've walked through this letter. If you put these texts together, you really get a good sense of what Paul has in mind when he tells Timothy to guard the deposit that had been entrusted to him. 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17, Paul writes this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. First Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, that he, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Just notice, friends, how this deposit we're talking about, this is woven throughout this letter. In fact, it's the entire point and purpose of the letter. The entire idea that Paul has been trying to get across is that the church of Jesus Christ, the household of God, is called to be both a pillar that holds high the truth of the gospel as well as a foundation on which the gospel is firmly resting. Friends, that's who we are as the people of God. We are a pillar and a foundation for the truth. When it comes to our gospel integrity as a church, we are on the hook. We're on the hook for for how that goes. Each of us is called to keep, to guard, to protect this good deposit that we've received. Now, you might be thinking, well, I mean, 
I'm just like a random person in this church. Am I really that important? Does what I think, does what I do, does what I say, do these things really matter all that much? Well, let me dispel you of any doubt. Yes, as a matter of fact, it does matter. You do matter here. If you're a member of this church, it is your responsibility to guard this deposit as well as mine. This is why church membership is so necessary and important. It makes us responsible. When we do membership well here at Emmaus, we are defending what has been entrusted to us. Every person that becomes a member of this church, we want to be able to say of that person that they are treasuring and believing this gospel that Emmaus treasures and believes. This is also why church leadership matters. As I mentioned a moment ago, Emmaus is in the process of installing new elders and deacons. And and you might wonder, why are we doing that? Well, we preached about it earlier this year. We talked about how the church needs elders and deacons. We talked about how elders and deacons must be firmly committed to guarding this deposit. Friends, good leadership in the church safeguards gospel integrity. What about Christian families? The church is not the only place where the deposit is guarded. It's also guarded in Christian homes because the home is the first place where the gospel is passed on to the next generation. Parents, you are the first disciple makers in a child's life. Moms and dads who believe this gospel and who belong to the church, they instruct their children about Jesus. They pass on the gospel to them. This is what we see in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now listen carefully to this. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That's what believing parents do. Of course, we do all the things that that every parent is supposed to do. We, we feed and clothe our children. We make sure there's a roof over their heads. We try to instill good values in them and, and try to set them up to be a successful adult. All those things are incredibly important. But none of them is more important than what I'm talking about this morning. The most important thing that you will ever do as a Christian parent is guarding what has been entrusted to you so that you can pass it to your children. This is something that Timothy experienced in his own life. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says of Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. So because of 
what happened in Timothy's life through his mother and his grandmother. And because today is Mother's Day, I, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to encourage the moms in the room. So moms, specifically for you, let me briefly offer three encouragements. Think of these as encouragements that will sustain you in the trenches of Christian motherhood. Encouragement number one. In Christ, God is supplying everything you need to be a faithful mom right now. For the moms here today, hopefully because it's Mother's Day, your family is going to pamper you a little bit. Hopefully that happens. Dads, get on that if you haven't made plans yet. But here's the thing. Today is going to end. At the stroke of midnight, Mother's Day will be over, and tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up, and what's going to wake you up? Probably the voice of a crying child somewhere in the house. And you're going to open your eyes, and quite possibly, the very first thought that you're going to have is, how am I going to get through today? How am I going to do this? I mean, I don't have the energy. I don't have the strength. I don't have the willpower to do all the things that this tiny, insane person is going to require of me. There is no such thing as a mom who wakes up every day feeling invincible. Because moms are people too. I know that sometimes we forget that, but it's actually true. Moms are human beings. Kids, take note. So moms, on those days when you don't know how you're even going to roll out of bed, let me remind you of something. Let me remind you that God's grace is enough for you. He is present with you. He is present to take care of you and to give you grace that will be precision cut for the exact need that you have. And when you don't have what it takes, when you are too weak to go on, his power will be made perfect in your weakness. He will get you out of bed. He will start you on your day. You know why? Because he's your good shepherd. Because he is with you, you will not want for anything. You will lack nothing. Believe what it says in Philippians 4.19. It says, my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So that's the first encouragement for moms. The second is this. God sees and delights in your daily faithfulness, even in the seemingly small, overlooked things that no one notices. I know that based on Instagram, we're all supposed to believe that motherhood can somehow be idyllic or glamorous. Many of you moms watch some of these social media accounts, some of these influencers, and the women on there, they look like they have it all together, right? I mean, they look great. They're in great shape. They're wearing really stylish clothes. Their house is really nice. Their kitchen is state-of-the-art. They're cooking an all-organic meal for dinner. Somehow they've got a four-year-old in the background diligently kneading dough. <laughs> the three-year-old is churning butter. I knew that would land. <laughs> Now imagine 
that suddenly as you're watching this perfect mom do her thing on Instagram, imagine that you hear a tiny voice and you look up and your child who did not help you make dinner, by the way, they have just thrown up their dinner instead. Their shirt is covered in partially digested mac and cheese, which was not organic. It's craft. And you realize something. That 99.9% of motherhood is not very Instagrammable. It's not photogenic at all. It is instead comprised of a series of daily tasks that the world will never care about. The vast majority of what you moms do this week will go largely unnoticed. But I want you to hear me say this. There is one who notices all of it. There is one who never misses a moment. Your God sees everything. None of it is lost on him. If you change what seems like your 50th dirty diaper today, he sees that. If you want five minutes to yourself and your three-year-old comes to you and says, will you read this book to me? And you die to yourself. You die to what you feel like doing. And you pick up that book and you read to that child. God did not miss that. His eye was upon you in that moment. There's nothing about your ordinary, mundane, daily faithfulness that he does not fail to see. Let me encourage you with Hebrews 6.10, moms. It reminds us that he is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you show each and every day. Encouragement number three for moms. God's grace is infinitely bigger than your sins and failures as a mother. Moms, like I just said, your day is full of little moments of ordinary faithfulness. But you know what it also has? It has some moments that you wish you could take back. It has some moments that you regret. And odds are, if you're a good mom, and if you love your kids, and if you love Jesus, you can tend to beat yourself up over those moments. You can tend to berate yourself for your sins and your failures. Maybe you were too harsh in your discipline. Maybe you took it a little too far. Maybe you're questioning some decision you made. You wonder, was that the right choice? I don't know if I made a good choice there. If that's the case, if that is the struggle, then let me remind you that while those things can be important, they aren't ultimate. They're not ultimate. They're probably not going to define who you are as a parent. Let me put it in perspective in this way. It's probably not going to define who your kid is going to become. Instead, what those moments really are is they're moments not for you to feel bad and feel regret and wallow. Instead, they are moments for you to exalt the grace of God in your home. Because you get to go to your kids whom you have just failed and sinned against, and you get to say to them, I blew it. I sinned. I failed. I, I didn't respond to that the right way. And what I want you to know is I'm repenting. And I know that as I repent, God will be full of, of mercy. He will be rich toward me in his steadfast love. Moms, you get to model for your children what it looks like to repent. 
You get to teach them through your own actions that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. You get to, to, tell, to tell them that though we have sinned, there is one who, who forgives us of our sins. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's what the gospel is all about for moms and dads. It takes our worst moments and it flips them on their heads so that they, they get to be moments where God's redemptive grace is most magnified. But here's the thing. Even when you sin or you fail, you actually can't lose. You actually can't lose because you belong to the God of all grace and his grace always wins. It cannot fail. This is the kind of stuff that Timothy grew up witnessing in his home. He saw the faith of his mother and his grandmother. He saw them repent. He heard about the grace of Jesus from them. The gospel had been entrusted to these two women as something precious, and they were faithful to pass it on to Timothy. So whether we're talking about being a Christian parent, whether we're talking about being members of this church, or whether we're talking about church leadership, for all of us, our number one objective is to do what Lois and Eunice did. We are to guard the deposit just as they have. We defend what we have received. But in order to do that, we need to consider the second exhortation we find in this passage. And that is to desist from pseudo-knowledge. Desist from pseudo-knowledge. Look at the very end of verse 20. Paul refers to that which is falsely called knowledge. Those false teachers in Ephesus, they fancied themselves as the gatekeepers of some secret, high-level spiritual knowledge. Oh boy, were they special. But Paul is saying here, they actually don't know anything. He said in, in, in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, these people, they want to be teachers of the law. They don't know the first thing about what the law is or what it means. They don't know anything. They may sound deep, but it's faux depth. They may sound knowledgeable about spiritual things, but it's only pseudo-knowledge. These are not shepherds who feed hungry souls with good, hearty meals of gospel grace. No, these are know-nothing bags of wind that starve their audience only to profit themselves. And those who are taken in by these windbags, what happens to them? What becomes of them? Well, quite tragically, they become inwardly malnourished and emaciated. In the end, their souls are starved to death. And verse 20 tells us how to spot this kind of thing. Paul gives us two characteristics of this pseudo-knowledge. He mentions first that these teachers were characterized by their irreverent babble. This is something that Paul will reiterate in 2 Timothy as well. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Paul tells Timothy that the problem with this irreverent babble is that it will lead people into more and more more ungodliness. It will spread like gangrene, he says. 
Remember that Paul thinks of the church as a body, right? He says this in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, that the church is the body of Christ. Jesus is our living head, and each of us individually are members of his body. So it makes a lot of sense that Paul would think of this irreverent babble as working like gangrene. Because what happens when a, when a person gets gangrene? Well, their body tissue dies. They can start small in the, the fingers or the toes, but if it's not stopped, it can spread throughout the body to vital organs, and it can end up killing you. That's the effect that this irreverent babble was having on the body of Christ. Just think about how serious that is. That is so serious. This pseudo-knowledge was killing off members of Christ's own body. And so Paul tells Timothy, hey, do anything and everything you can to avoid that irreverent babble. The other thing that Timothy is to avoid, and this is the second characteristic of pseudo-knowledge, is contradictions. The word that, that Paul uses in verse 20 for contradictions, it is, it is translated from the word antithesis. Antithesis. So if Paul's message was the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done, then the things that these false teachers were saying, the message that they were peddling was the antithesis of Paul's good news. You see, it was, it was an anti-gospel. And Timothy's job was to guard against this because look at verse 21. The result of this pseudo-knowledge, this counterfeit false knowledge is that people end up swerving from the faith. Paul talked about this earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He told us the Spirit expressly says, that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, which work through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Of course, no one who entertains this pseudo-knowledge wakes up one morning and says to themselves, you know what, I feel like repudiating Orthodox Christianity today. I'm going to do that. It's not how it works. It's never that obvious. It's never that explicit. But that's always the outcome, isn't it? That's always the result. It, it starts almost imperceptibly at first. It starts small, but eventually it snowballs. You're swerving from the faith because here's the thing. Satan, your enemy, he loves to exploit your vulnerability. He loves to capitalize on your susceptibilities. We may justify entertaining a, a false teacher by saying, well, I'm just listening to different perspectives. I'm just, I'm just wanting to hear what other people think. We're supposed to listen to people who disagree with us, aren't we? Isn't that the humble thing to do? Well, I'll grant that maybe in some cases it is. It is the right thing to do. But be careful, friend. Be very careful because your enemy is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He desires to have you that he may sift you as wheat. And he's very crafty. He knows your weaknesses. 
He knows where you are vulnerable. He knows how he can get a foothold on your life. And so the more that you listen to things that corrode your faith, as you spend time consuming pseudo-knowledge and its irreverent babble and its contradictions, the more you do that, the more susceptible you become to the devil's schemes. Just listen to what John Calvin says. He warns us that Satan lies in wait to see if he can snatch this treasure, this deposit from us. We must not become his prey. Let us keep our conscience clear, for this is how we preserve the treasure of the gospel, which means walking sincerely in godly fear, setting our mind on things above, and being stirred up to obey God and to give ourselves to him. This is how we may preserve this treasure. We have no fear of the things that may steal it since God will not allow that. But if, on the other hand, we are careless, then we give the devil entry. Thus, we will be robbed and left without a thing. So with this in mind, here's my admonition. Do not be careless about what you let into your heart and your mind. Be thoughtful about the things you entertain. Be discerning about who you are allowing to speak into your life. Because there are people out there in the world, and there are people even in the church who are flirting with very dangerous theological ideas. But even so, I'll also tell you this. That the greatest danger of all is not the false teacher online whose, whose videos are circulating on social media. It's not someone out there in the culture. No, the most dangerous false teacher is the one within. The one that you carry with you at all times. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can possibly understand it? The false teacher you should be most concerned about is your own heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher, once put it this way. He said, we are all false prophets with respect to ourselves. Doesn't mean we need to be neurotic about it. Doesn't mean that we need to to wring our hands and and worry that someday we'll we'll wake up and, and we'll be apostate. It's not what I'm saying. It's not exactly how it works, but... What I am saying and what this does mean is that some good, healthy self-suspicion would not be the worst thing for us. Especially because the vast majority of us have, have grown up in a culture where we've been told again and again and again, follow your heart. Follow your heart. It won't lead you astray. Follow your heart. It'll make your dreams come true. Well, actually, your heart is not all that reliable. Which is why you don't need to follow your heart ultimately. Now, what you need is the means of grace. You need those means of grace that God has appointed for the Christian life. You and I, we need to practice things like Christian community. We need to, to feast on the scriptures regularly. We need Jesus to teach us how to pray. If we're going to desist from pseudo-knowledge, that's how it will be done. 
We will avoid irreverent babble and contradictions, not by our own strength and our own stamina, but by practicing those things that God has ordained for our lives. It's through these means of grace that we learn to abide in Christ. That's why we're here this morning, right? That's why we've gathered the the community of faith brought together to worship the living God. This, right now, this is a means of grace for you. It is a standing Weekly reminder that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That brings me to the third and final exhortation for today. I'll end with this. As you defend what's been entrusted, and as you desist from pseudo-knowledge, I exhort you to depend on the grace that abounds. Christ. Look at the very last statement that Paul writes in this letter. He says, grace be with you. The last word of the letter is a word of grace. I love that. And so that's what I want to leave you with today. I want to end here with a word of grace. Maybe you've come this morning and in your heart, it's not irreverent babble or contradictions or pseudo-knowledge that you're thinking about and entertaining. It's not these things that you've been listening to. Instead, in your heart, you've been listening to the voice of Moses. You're feeling beat up by the unyielding demands of the law. You hear me say things like, guard the deposit. Practice the means of grace. You hear these things and, and, and your first thought is, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? You, you, you're going to tell me to do those things when I am so racked by guilt and shame and despondency that I can barely think straight this morning. If that's what you're thinking today, you're actually not in bad company. Charles Spurgeon knows how you feel. He's been where you are. He says this. He says, I myself have been in such a condition that if heaven could have been purchased by a single prayer, I should have been damned. For I could no more pray than I could fly. He continues saying that when we are in the grave that the law has dug for us, it is impossible to stir hand or foot. And when we would cry out for help, our voice refuses to obey. In vain does the minister cry, repent. That faith of which he speaks seems to be as much beyond our capacity as the creation of an entire universe. And so the thundering sentence is now in our ears. Thou art condemned already. In the opinion of the sinner, he is now cast out. He expects to be tormented by the worm that never dies and to lift up his eyes in hell. And yet, says Spurgeon, that this moment of greatest despair, this moment that you are most convinced of your own damnation, this, he says, is mercy's moment. It's the last thing to ever dawn on sinners like us, but but this is the exact moment where the subject is turned from the law of Moses that condemns to the grace of God that abounds in Jesus Christ. Yes, the law came through Moses. 
But grace and truth have come to the lowest of the low through Jesus. The word made flesh come to dwell among us in his fullness is grace upon grace upon grace. Spurgeon says, listen to me. Oh, you heavy laden, condemned sinner. While in my master's name, I publish super abounding grace. Though your sins are many, mercy hath many more pardons. Though they excel the stars, the sands, and the drops of dew in their number, one act of redemption can cancel them all. Your iniquity, though it be a mountain, it has been cast into the depths of the sea. It has been washed away entirely by the cleansing flood of your Redeemer. Emmaus, it is finished. It is done. This grace that Spurgeon is talking about, this grace is with us. It's with us right here, right now, in this moment, in this room. It is here, and it is yours for the taking. I mean that quite literally. Because in just a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to take the physical elements of the Lord's Supper into our hands, and we will hold them in faith. And as we hold them, we are partaking in the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what this table is for. It is a means of grace for weary, broken-down sinners like us. All you need to do in order to come is believe. Believe in Jesus. Simply believe that he is your redeemer who meets you here at this table and who feeds you and nourishes you through his own body and blood. If you don't believe that, if you don't believe that Jesus is at this table, if you don't believe in him as your redeemer, we're going to ask you not to come today. We respectfully ask you to stay at your seat. This, this table is for sinners, yes but it's for sinners who are coming to Christ. So if you don't have faith, we ask that instead of coming, you would consider, you would think over the things that we have talked about today. Consider what it would mean for you to receive this grace that we've been exalting in here this morning. For those of us who will come, we'll start in the first row and we'll move to the very back of the room. You'll come down the aisle on this side of the room. There's hand sanitizer here. If you want that, and then you can walk to this side of the front of the room and the elements are there for you at the table. You can receive them, take them with you back to your seat and observe the supper. After we've observed this supper, we'll sing a final song and we'll be dismissed. But before we come to the table, would you bow your head and pray with me? Lord Jesus, your grace is measureless. Abundant, freely given. For those of us who are so used to listening to Moses, that can be hard to fathom. But at the deepest level of who we are, we know it's true. You are gracious and merciful to sinners like us. You are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we come depending on you, Lord. We are banking our lives on the fact that you have pledged your grace to us in the gospel. 
And you have afforded that grace to us by your own broken body and your shed blood. So we come, feast on that blood and that body now. Lord, nourish us. Give us the courage and the strength to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to us. It's in your name we're praying these things. Amen. Church, your Jesus is waiting for you. Come and feast on his grace. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.